Being a surgeon is one of the most lucrative careers in Australia, but those high salaries are almost exclusively the preserve of male surgeons. There are some well-known reasons for the lack of women surgeons. These include overt sexual discrimination and harassment, unfriendly workload and family leave policies, lack of female role models and mentors. But what if these factors were the tip of the iceberg? What if gender biases were so subtle and deep that they seemed both invisible and normal, except to those who are unfairly treated? Welcome to In the Cave Ethics Podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Rogers, and Deputy Director of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency Values and Ethics. Here to talk with me today about those issues is Katrina Hutchison. Katrina is a senior lecturer in the Department of Philosophy at Macquarie University, and she holds an ARC DECRA Fellowship. Katrina, welcome. Thanks, Wendy. Katrina, in your article in the Journal of Medical Ethics, you identify four different and sometimes quite subtle types of bias that can affect women surgeons and trainees. Before explaining these to our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about why you're interested in how much women surgeons earn? This project that I've been doing on um, women in surgery brings together two different research interests that I'd had um, previously. As a PhD student at the ANU, I worked with um, one of the associate professors there, uh, Fiona Jenkins, on a project on the underrepresentation of women in academic philosophy. So this was where my interest in women's careers began. And we published an edited book, Women in Philosophy, What Needs to Change? And one of the things that themes of that book was the way very small factors that have a cumulative impact, what Mary Rowe has called micro inequities, can accumulate to cause gender discrimination, even in contexts where it seems as though some of the major types of bias and discrimination have been eliminated or largely eliminated. Then I worked for a number of years uh, with you at Macquarie University on a project on ethics of surgical innovation. So this was my sort of introduction to the world of surgery. And um, it became very obvious quite quickly how underrepresented women were in surgery. I think the moment that was the starting point for this research was at a women in surgery breakfast at the College of Surgeons, which you and I were both at, where there was um, a lot of discussion, um, this was in 2015, of recent media comments about sexual harassment and bullying in the surgical profession. And the profession itself was very concerned about this and has taken a number of steps to try and improve things. But I was thinking during that conversation how the work that I'd done on underrepresentation of women in philosophy and this lens that Fiona and I had used of thinking about, I guess, the kinds of bias that remain when some of the most egregious um, forms of bias are largely eliminated, how perhaps that would also be true in surgery and that um, beneath the really striking examples of sexual harassment and bullying that were being identified and talked about at that time in the training program, there were probably also sort of profession-specific forms of micro-inequities of like small credibility deficits that um, were gendered and I was curious about what forms that they might take and surgery um, being such a prestigious and highly paid profession it's quite an interesting one to explore in terms of I think the gender pay gap and perhaps a model for some other uh, professions as well. Thanks Katrina it's, a, it's an interesting contrast isn't it because you wouldn't necessarily think that philosophy and surgery have a lot in common um, but but as, as your work shows there's some patterns there that really need some attention. Yes, similarities and differences, I think. 
Yeah. So your, your, your research involved a qualitative study um, in which you interviewed 46 women who are either currently um, surgeons, fellows of the College of Surgeons or trainees, and you asked them about their experiences. But it seems to me that you must have, it must have been a delicate balance to find out the kind of information you wanted to find out without necessarily kind of putting the idea of biases and micro inequities into their mind and I'm sure not many people would be even familiar with the term micro inequity so how did you manage that how did you how did you get the information you sought without potentially contaminating the interviews with these concepts Uh, that's a good question so I was very conscious of this when I was developing the questions that I used for the interviews and thinking about what sorts of information I was interested in and what areas of people's careers we might talk about that would, if, if there were examples of, of micro inequities and credibility deficits and small subtle biases going on, but people would talk about those without, in a way, being asked to talk about them. So that was kind of, and, th- and then you find out whether they're there, <laughs> e- even, even when you don't provide the kind of conceptual information and then ask people, does this happen to you? which is a kind of very leading sort of question if you do that. So I think I just asked people first, tell me about your career. So a very open-ended question. And then I had different areas of people's careers that I was interested in. So I asked them to talk about if they'd experienced any barriers or if they had what they'd experienced as supports that had kind of helped them in their career. Then we talked about interpersonal interactions. So interactions with other surgeons, healthcare professionals, um, patients and patient families, nursing staff in the operating room. And I just ask things like, look, there's a lot of teamwork involved in surgery and interpersonal interactions. Can you tell me about those? And people would always illustrate with examples. And then when I'm at the analysis stage, I look through the examples and there are examples of these micro inequities and what I call epistemic injustices, drawing on the philosopher Miranda Fricker, who has developed a kind of concept of epistemic injustice. So this is kind of credibility deficits that people can experience where they're assumed to know more or less about something on the basis of stereotypes. So I could look for these things later, but I tried to just ask these very open-ended questions, but focusing in on areas of people's work where I thought that that there might be instances of these things and um, asking people for examples. So if people started to tell me about something and I thought it sounded interesting, I'd say, can you tell me a bit more about that or is there an example of that that you can describe? Some of the interview subjects, uh, participants in my study had done theoretical work on some of these things already. I had one person who knew a lot of feminist philosophy, but a lot of people um, hadn't. So in those interviews, the terminology wouldn't have been introduced. It was just later when I looked through it that I'm looking for things in the analysis stage. So that set of 46 interviews turned out to be a really rich data source for you, didn't it? And, and, and I just love the anecdotes, the way that you illustrate the points that you make. You identified four types of gender bias. And the first you link to workplace conditions. So what did, what did your participants tell you about the impact of work conditions and how, do these, um, how did you frame these in terms of the philosophical language and concepts? Yeah, good question. So when I was giving the interviews, as I just described, I didn't ask sort of explicit questions about these four topics. This is kind of the product of the analysis. So when I was looking at what kinds of areas people mentioned that they'd, ex- that they'd experienced gender bias or they, there was a pattern that I could see across the interviews, from that analysis, I identified these areas. So in terms of the workplace factors, these were perhaps the sort of things that are more often already acknowledged in the literature and in public discourse. But I think of them as being the things that, I guess, human resources or institutional policies 
would potentially be able to address. So things like access to different forms of um, leave, like parental leave and even just holiday leave, Um, access to flexible work, so part-time work, for example. The rostering in in hospitals and around on-call and these sorts of things does provide kind of distinctive challenges in that for these sort of workplace policies that may be a little bit unique to healthcare or to other areas where there's kind of emergency call requirements and where you obviously have to have a full number of staff available at any given time. The other sorts of things were the way that workplaces were set up. So for example, there are locker rooms where surgeons and operating theatre nurses change into their um, scrubs for the surgery. So there were kind of differences, you know, maybe the woman's change room would be further away or the change rooms dated from an era when it was assumed that all the surgeons would be men and all of the nurses would be women. So the male change room had would have lockers and the female change room wouldn't or they were even labelled um, doctors and nurses or something. Like, I mean, I don't think I had an example of that, but that this this is about what the work environment that you work in is like. And there were other things like the tools that were available, the heights of the heights of beds and benches, the size of gloves that were available in the hospital. Yeah, so those those were the sorts of things that were identified as workplace factors. Like one surgeon, for instance, um, said, "Look, I've got a small hand. I take a smaller glove size than many of my colleagues, and in fact, none of the hospitals have my glove size, so I carry a box of gloves." around with me. A couple of other people talked about being up on a step so that they could reach the table while they were operating. When I was an intern, I was on a unit with a very tall surgeon. I used to have to stand on a box in theatre <laughs> and it makes you just feel so so short and silly. I mean, like, there's no reason why being short makes you feel silly, but when you've got a great tall surgeon there and you're standing on a box. The second kind of bias you, d- you describe from your data as challenges to credibility, and you say that this is an epistemic injustice. Can you just explain what an epistemic injustice is? Yeah, so the philosopher that this is most strongly associated with at the moment is um, Miranda Fricker, and she has a book, Epistemic Injustice, Ethics and the Power of Knowing, where she outlines a form of injustice or unfairness that can occur to individuals that harms them in their capacity as a knower. So obviously in our interactions with other people, we exchange information all the time. And it's relatively important to your participation, uh, full participation in all kinds of relationships with others, that they respect your testimony and believe you when you're telling the truth and that you do the same for other people. And the notion of epistemic injustice refers to situations where you are systematically treated as knowing more or less than you really know about something because of an identity prejudicial stereotype, a gender bias or a a racist kind of prejudice or a prejudice against you as um, someone who's disabled or on the basis of your sexuality or your religion um, or your class. People use this as a kind of frame for thinking about or forming beliefs about or expectations about what you'll know. And then they um, interact with you as though you know more or less about certain things as a result of having this bias. And for Miranda Fricker, the philosopher who I guess is most strongly associated with this term, these are particularly where the prejudice is resistant to evidence. So even where you have evidence that somebody knows about a particular topic, the stereotypes that you hold about that person prevent you from treating them as though they do. So one example of this testimonial kind of injustice, a stereotype that prevents women surgeons from being straightforwardly seen as the kind of 
highly qualified knowers that they are is a kind of stereotype that we're all familiar with, I guess, from children's books and things of the kind of male doctor or surgeon and the female nurse is kind of a kind of crude version of it. And what a lot of the women surgeons I spoke to encountered was just people being surprised that they were the surgeon or they'd had the whole consultation with the surgeon, particularly in maybe an emergency or public health context where they hadn't been told who was who, the patient. And they'd say, well, when am I going to speak to the surgeon? Or I've met this lovely secretary and I'm looking forward to meeting the surgeon. And in fact, they had had the consultation with the surgeon. So this is a kind of example of where some other people's interactions with you take it for granted that you have a certain kind of expertise or lack a certain kind of expertise falsely on the basis of a stereotype. So that gets very wearing to have to constantly be explaining yourself and saying, well, actually, I am the surgeon. And did did the people you interview express that kind of weariness or just being fed up with, you know, wanting to have I am a surgeon tattooed on their forehead? (laughs) It was mixed. So there were some who were quite exasperated with it. And um, who said, look, it becomes a bit of a, of a bore having to explain this all the time or answer this question. Some had developed kind of strategies that they used in their practice. So, for example, always introducing themselves as the surgeon, you know, hello, I'm such and such and I'm, your, I'm the consultant surgeon. I'll be performing the surgery. Surgery, 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 <laughs> That's <mean> right. surgery. <laughs> That's yeah. right. And some of them kind of talked about that as though it was a kind of chore or a burden Others said things like, well, it's kind of public education. I think I'm doing good by explaining this to people. It's nice to be challenging, you know, people's stereotypes. So there were, and and some people kind of, although they mentioned it, said, look, it doesn't bother me or, you know, that's natural. I understand that people did this. So there were a full range of attitudes towards it. But it was certainly the case that this was something that almost all the surgeons that I interviewed had experienced. And many of them described their ways that they developed to address it. And it often ended up being just this much more detailed introduction of themselves. So if I've understood you correctly, the, the um, challenges to credibility, that epistemic injustice is based on stereotypes, unfair stereotypes. But then you distinguish a third type of problem, which you, which you called role stereotyping. So how did that differ from the credibility deficit stereotyping? And, and what, in what ways were the w- women surgeon pigeonholed? Oh, this is a great question. So... The epistemic injustices, I really focused on things that related to knowledge and also skill. So this was where a patient had said to someone, you know, questioned whether they they knew what they were talking about or whether they would be able to do a good job on the basis that apparently of gender. And I could just give you a couple of other examples there. There were also examples of what I call, following Fricker, credibility excesses where someone is expected to know more about something on the basis of a stereotype too. So a really common one is surgeons are expected to know more about kind of reproductive health and breasts and these sorts of things if they're a woman. Um, so it, one surgeon said to me, look, even though I don't have children and I don't really know much about all that, I get referred a lot of women with a particular condition who are trying to balance that with pregnancy because I'm a woman and actually I've got a lot of babies named after me. So this person was experiencing a kind of credibility excess in the area of reproductive health in connection with the surgery that she did. The role stereotypes that I'm talking about, sometimes they do overlap with or intersect with judgments about knowledge and expertise, but some of them, it would be more of a stretch to try and fold them in under that way of understanding things. So these were stereotypes about women being friendlier, Um, being more approachable, being more caring, 
um, engaging in different sorts of communication. So, for example, and, and they, they arose in the context of the surgeon-patient relationship, but also in the context of the surgeon's interactions with other colleagues. They would be anywhere from, for example, nurses asking female trainee surgeons to do more paperwork while seeming to assume that male trainee surgeons would do more of the kind of hands-on surgery or patient interaction to things like people saying that they always seem to be getting the coffee or cleaning up the coffee cups in meetings with their colleagues to examples of people feeling or perceiving that they were expected to take a greater interest in the personal lives of both their colleagues and their patients. Examples like, I feel as though if I say hello to the nurses and I ask them about their weekend and I ask them how their family is going and we have this interaction, then I can move on to talking about what we're going to do today and the procedure. And if I don't do that, people say, what's wrong? (laughs) You know, are you okay today? And I don't perceive that the same, that things unfold the same way with the male surgeons, that they have to do this kind of social, friendly social interaction before they move on to the professional things. And some of the surgeons said that they perceived a kind of expectation. It was the same with the patients. So they gave examples. Look, I think patients will tell me about other things that are happening in their life that aren't directly related to the condition that they're here to see me about. And they expect that I'll be interested and sympathetic. And some of the surgeons, again, really embraced this. They'd say, oh, I like it. I think it's something I bring to the job. It's a, it's a skill that I have that is good, which is probably true. It's, it probably is a really better experience as a patient and as a colleague to have friendly colleagues who are interested in you. But others experienced it as more of a burden or at least they experienced it as unfair that they did this kind of um, emotional work, I guess, and that they didn't perceive that it was done to the same extent by some of their male colleagues or expected to be done. And some felt that it wasn't natural for them, but that they'd been kind of forced into it. And they said things like, I don't think patients would respond very well if I didn't do this. So I've changed the way that I interact with patients so that I do do it. And they also, some of my participants drew attention to a kind of tension between being regarded as sort of having authority or holding authority, which the surgeon does in the operating room, and being seen as nice or um, warm or approachable. And it was a tension that some of the surgeons that I spoke to were quite aware of having to navigate and negotiate in their interaction with colleagues and patients, this kind of tension between um, authority and approachability. It's a really common kind of gender stereotype, isn't it? You know, an assertive woman is, you know, aggressive, domineering, bad-tempered, and an assertive man is, you know, obviously highly skilled and knows what he's doing. It's it's a, it's kind of depressing to to hear about it <laughs> alive and well in surgery in yeah. what year is it? Twenty twenty one. Yeah, I think maybe I I could add one more thing, one more type of example there, which is the kinds of referrals that the women surgeons received also reflected some of these stereotypes. So I mentioned one example, the woman who received referrals of pregnant women with the condition that she treated, even though she herself hadn't um, had children and felt that she didn't have any special expertise in that area. But other surgeons also noticed patterns of referral, for example, being referred more anxious patients, patients with English as a second language, patients who wanted a second opinion. So any 
any types of patients where you might think you needed a better or more sympathetic communicator. These were the groups of patients that surgeons mentioned, talked to me about receiving, you know, a lot of referrals of compared to their perception of what their male peers um, received. And again, a lot of them really embraced that and thought that was a wonderful thing that they were doing, which it, it, which it is. But those patients also can, you know, require longer consultations and um, be more complex to manage in some instances. So it's not, it's not really clear that these referral patterns are then materially recognised. You might spend a lot longer with someone, but you might not charge them any more for it. In fact, the women surgeons that I talked to, quite a few of them said, look, I don't think I charge as much as um, some of the men do. When I hear a, a sad story, something terrible that one of my patients has been through, I might discount. If I'm running late, I might bulk bill. So there were examples of where women surgeons had actually charged a reduced fee for these kind of longer consultations. Surely this is what we want all of our health professionals to do, to be engaging with us with empathy and in a way that's responsive to our personal situation and so forth. So I'm not at all suggesting that this is something that's bad or that women surgeons shouldn't be doing. Indeed, perhaps the other way around, maybe all surgeons should be doing it. But I think it also raises quite interesting questions about what aspects of the work are valued because I think it's very easy to value the surgeon, you know, scrubbing up and doing something very precise and technical inside you with their tools to fix a surgical problem. And of course, that is really important. But the care that goes on around it, um, I don't know if that's valued to the same extent. And I think that's a kind of site of some of these gender inequities as well in the profession. I'm sure it is because money's time, basically. And I'm pretty sure this is right, but when you have an operation, post-op consultation is often included in the cost of the operation. So if you whip through that, you know, just whip the stitches out and say, see you later, then you've saved all that time versus, you know, understanding exactly how the patient was affected by the operation and what they're thinking and what they're worried about and and so forth. So the more time you spend, the less income you earn in in fairly kind of hard cash terms in in the Australian fee-for-service environment exactly and some of the surgeons said that they thought the patients perceived that if you weren't more you were better or if you charged more you were better or if you acted as though your time was was very valuable and you didn't have much of it and they hadn't paid for very much of it then that must mean you were very very good so there's this kind of mismatch I think between what we might think of as a kind of indicator of credibility which is someone charging a lot and really what's underpinning that which is excellent clinical care which presumably involves the communicative side and the care for the patient and the whole view of the patient as a person who comes, you know, has a life before the surgery and a life after the surgery. And that isn't just gendered. It's obviously going to um, tend to create certain kinds of consultations and patient-doctor interactions in a way that maybe isn't what, what we would most hope for as a patient. Yeah, it's certainly deeply ingrained, that idea that you get what you pay for and if they're very expensive, they must be very good. This did come up in the interviews with with some of the participants. I didn't have a prompt about it, so I wasn't kind of probing that explicitly, but it did come up at times. The final kind of bias you discuss is objectification, which again is a, a common experience of women across many different walks of life. But what were some of the most surprising or shocking examples of objectification that you discovered? Look, there was... A great range of different experiences that I've categorised under this term objectification, although it wasn't really a word that any of the participants used to describe these experiences. 
they ranged from really quite egregious sort of sexualization of the doctor within the clinical encounter by patients and sexualization of the professional relationship by colleagues right to just what I think is very mundane but also a form of objectification which is a kind of tendency to reflect on the way one presents oneself physically in the world and in the job and I had a full spectrum of different perspectives on this from the surgeons um, about how they dressed and how they physically presented themselves but there was a kind of tendency to start to talk about this that I thought was a reflecting a kind of level of taking for granted that there would be some kind of objectification or engagement with physical appearance so for instance some women said look I surgery's kind of messy work and it's physical you know I always make sure I wear practical shoes and practical clothes and you know I'm ready to to kind of get my hands dirty there was that kind of mindset and then there was a different set of people who said the better you dress the more you'll be respected I wear the highest heels I wear the sharpest suits I try to look fantastic so there were these really different perspectives about how one should present oneself as a woman surgeon and there were also women who said, "Look, some of my, some of the other, some of the other women surgeons that I know, they don't kind of lean in to their femininity in appearance and this sort of thing. They don't sort of present themselves. They don't wear dresses. You know, they they cut their hair short. But I always did that. You know, I always wore skirts and I always wore dresses. And I didn't think any of my colleagues minded. And there's obviously not a right answer to this, but I thought it was interesting that." So many of the people I interviewed sort of spontaneously brought up these reflections on their appearance and had thought about what it meant to present themselves in certain sorts of ways because I think that is a kind of mundane but important dimension of sort of objectification. Yeah, it's that feeling that you're not just free to be how you are in the world but that always you're, you're the object of, of a gay, of some somebody's gaze, that somebody's exactly. watching you and whether you thumb your nose at it and wear your, you know, your, your daggy old tracksuit and, <laughs> and cut your hair with a shaver or whether you dress up to the nines. It's still responding in, in some way to that, you know, notion of the gaze, which is, again, is a, a strong feature of sexual harassment and the micro inequities that we've been talking about. Exactly. Yeah, that is exactly what I felt reading through the set of interviews as a whole was that there was a kind of recurring theme of that. In various ways. We're just about out of time, Katrina, but I wonder if you could summarise like a, a key take-home message or, and I guess I'm interested in whether you're sort of optimistic or pessimistic about the way things are going regarding gender equity in a profession like surgery. I'm definitely optimistic. I think the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons has been taking this very seriously and trying to support all kinds of initiatives to make the profession more inclusive. And of course, um, there can always be debate about what's the best way to go forward and whether or not an organisation is doing enough or a profession is doing enough. But a very striking contrast would be the recent debates around sexual harassment and bullying and complaints processes in Parliament House. And I think that you could really contrast the kind of very active and concerned engagement with the problem once they realise the extent and seriousness of it, of the surgical profession in Australia with the relative indifference stonewalling as well stonewall yeah, yeah of of the politicians so i think there's kind of a will for things to be different and better i think the numbers are increasing a little bit the trend is that more women are going into surgery and i think that there are efforts uh, particularly um 
to make sure that the training program is more supportive. So some of these workplace factors, at least they're visible, they're easy to see, and I think there are efforts afoot to try and um, improve things. But I think it's always important that people keep their keep the pressure on because it tends to be on quite strongly if there's bad media coverage or something and it can come off when there's not. And I think there's also just been a lot more attention to small forms of bias and injustice as well. We hear about implicit bias and these sorts of things even in the media. So I think the sorts of things I'm trying to draw attention to in the research that I've been doing, there is a kind of receptive audience for them both in the wider um, public discourse and in surgery. So for those reasons, I'm optimistic. That's great to hear. Thanks, Katrina. That's been a really interesting insight into the world of women surgeons and the ways that it's sort of seemingly trivial comments and behaviours can really amount to systemic discrimination and and undermine the way people work and their their self-respect and how they can behave in the the world. Katrina's worked as a terrific job of meticulously exposing these different types of discrimination. I highly recommend Katrina's paper to you. Uh, That's all we've got time for now. There are links to Katrina's paper in the show notes. Thank you for your time. This podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency Values and Ethics in the Cave podcast. And I've been your host, Wendy Rogers.